Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast and an edition of Bible Study for Atheists. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The recent move of the American embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem agitated the global Jewish community deeply. It spread wider the fissures that have been growing at an accelerated rate since the first Likud government of Menachem Begin redefined the nature of the Israeli state 40 years ago, building facts on the ground in the West Bank. Samaria, as Begin called it, and shortly I will explain to you why. On one side of the divide are those Jews who would like to see a two-state solution in Israel-Palestine. On the other, supporters of the expansionist Likud project. I'm not going to get into this too deeply. That debate has been going on for more than half a century, and it would take probably 50 years to explain the ins and outs of the Jewish arguments, and I try to keep these podcasts to 15 minutes or less. This podcast is about argument. Jews argue with each other all the time. And for years I have wondered if this arguing is proof of at least one aspect of the Bible. The essence of the Hebrews described in the Old Testament, stiff-necked, quarrelsome, seems to fit the Jewish community throughout history to the present day. For years I've wondered about an important biblical event that underscores the perpetual, one-people, divided state of Jewish affairs. The division of the tribes of Israel into two kingdoms after the death of King Solomon. The northern one, the Kingdom of Israel, centered in Begin's Samaria, today's West Bank, as well as the Galilee, and the southern kingdom of Judah, centered on Jerusalem and Hebron. The move of the American embassy rekindled my interest in this event. What caused the split? Was it some major theological rift or a political ideological shift? The story is swiftly told in the second book of Kings. Is there more to it? The historicity of the Bible is a big question. How much of what is written there? Fact. When it comes to the two kingdoms, it seems there is no doubt. The historical record of the time on monuments left behind by Assyrian and Egyptian empires shows references to the destruction of the kingdom of Israel and the murder of Josiah, king of Judah. But what else? It's hard to track down objective historical studies of the people who wrote and about whom the Old Testament is written. Since philosopher Baruch Spinoza initiated the idea of objective biblical studies in the late 17th century, at the start of the Enlightenment, the subject has been fraught. Spinoza used his knowledge of Hebrew and classical languages to compare the multiple versions of the book to prove that it was not divinely authored, but rather a human project compiled over many centuries. In the era of modern archaeology, digging up the biblical lands has often been done by people with an agenda to prove Bible stories for theological reasons or to prove claims to the disputed land of Israel and Palestine. As I researched the two kingdoms, I had to put many books aside because they very clearly had an agenda. But then I came across a book called The Bible Unearthed by archaeologists Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman, which covers the creation and destruction of the two kingdoms in detail. The book has been around a while and apparently excited a bit of controversy when it was published, but somehow I missed that, maybe because it came out in 2001, just before the attacks of September 11th, and I, along with the whole world, got distracted. I started reading the Bible unearthed, thinking, oh, this will give the historical background about why Jews are always at each other's throats, but it gave me an even deeper insight into historical continuity.
Here's the story. The split of the 12 tribes of Israel into two kingdoms, what had to be one of the most wrenching events in Jewish history, is dealt with in the Bible in the first book of Kings, chapter 12. After the death of King Solomon of the tribe of Judah, his son, Rehoboam, gathered all the tribes to be acknowledged as their king. But towards the end of Solomon's reign, there were already arguments growing and a prophecy that the tribes would split up. This was punishment for Solomon taking foreign wives and letting them worship their gods. The prophecy comes true. The ten tribes ask Rehoboam to make their yoke lighter, which I think means reduce their taxes. And Rehoboam says to them, he will add to that burden. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. And the ten tribes responded, What portion do we have in David? See to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents, and the kingdom split. And here is where the Bible unearthed gets interesting. Finkelstein and Asher line up architectural evidence, some of which is based on their own fieldwork, to show there really was a split in this group of people. The ten tribes formed the kingdom of Israel. It really does get confusing. Israel, Israel, Israel. In the biblical story, Jacob wrestled all night with an angel. Call it a draw. The angel tells him, henceforth, you shall be known as Israel. Isra, in ancient Hebrew, means struggle or fight. El is a word for God. At Hebrew school, 55 years ago, I was taught that Israel meant struggles with God, which describes the all-night session with the angel, but also the perpetual battle between Jews and God. The current view is that should be reversed. God shall fight. The Jews believed their God would fight for them. That's the Bible story. In reality, the first mention of the word Israel in the verifiable historical record is on the Merneptah Stella in Egypt, erected 2,500 years ago. It reads, Israel is laid waste, its seed is no more. Hmm. It's never good for us, is it? The two kingdoms are split. Finkelstein and Asher describe how the northern kingdom grows and prospers for 200 years before its rulers make a severe geopolitical error of judgment. They double-cross the Assyrian Empire. The king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, destroyed it and carted the survivors off to his capital, Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, in northern Iraq, and to other places in his vast empire. The ten tribes disappeared into myth, lost to history. During this time, the kingdom of Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem, was a backwater. Why? And more importantly, how? The how first. How could it be a backwater if kings David and Solomon were of the tribe of Judah and ruled from Jerusalem, where Solomon built the temple 40 cubits long, 20 cubits high, of cedar wood overlaid with gold? Well, say Finkelstein and Asher, that bit of the Old Testament doesn't fit with the archaeological record and is not true. There's little trace of the grand cities of the Davidic kingdom. Jerusalem, in his time, was no more than a simple town on top of a hill. If you've been to Jerusalem and the surrounding area, you will understand why Judah, and the smaller tribe of Benjamin, which was part of the kingdom, might not have been so grand in the time of David and Solomon. Unlike the Galilee and Samaria, this region isn't very fertile. Agriculture is hard on the rocky outcrops of the Judean hills. Few trade routes pass through because it's difficult to climb up one sharp slope after another. 
But with the northern kingdom erased, Judah did finally begin to grow, possibly because refugees from the north swelled its population and brought the commercial skills developed in the centuries when the kingdom of Israel was at its height. Judah also became a client state of Assyria, but then a new power appeared in Mesopotamia, Babylon. The Babylonians overthrew the Assyrians. At the same time, Egypt reemerged as a regional power, pressing up on Judah from the south. Which team are you going to join? King Zedekiah of Judah chose Egypt, another wrong geopolitical move. The Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it, killed Zedekiah's sons in front of him, then blinded the king and dragged him and his kingdom's elite into exile in Babylon. All of this is described in the second book of Kings, which is a chronology of the rulers of both kingdoms, one that jibes remarkably with Assyrian records that have survived. The chronology in Kings is remarkably terse. For the most part, it just lists a name, length of rule, and a notation whether the king did evil in the eyes of God. Almost all of them did. And what was the evil that they did? Well, usually it related to rituals and worship. The ancient Middle East was a place of many gods and different religions, and most kingdoms and empires were syncretic in their outlook. Who people worshipped was less important than tribute being paid on time or maintaining good trade relationships with other nations. There was lots of intermarriage. You might grow up with one set of gods, marry someone with a different set. You might have two sets of household gods. Now, Judaism's foundation story is about worshipping one god and no other, and he is to be worshipped at his temple in Jerusalem. But as the northern kingdom grew and came into contact with different people, it became syncretic and created new places and rituals of worship. And after its destruction, so too did the kingdom of Judah. Then, in the reign of King Josiah, an idea of a covenant between a single deity, whose name cannot be spoken, and the tribes of Israel took root. A scroll was found in the temple, so the story goes, a covenant outlining the law the children of Israel were to follow. Scholars think this covenant forms the core of the last book of the Torah, Deuteronomy. With this discovery, a Puritan fervor took hold of Judah, but after Josiah's death in battle against the Egyptians, there was backsliding. His sons ascended to the throne and did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then came the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 587 BCE by the Babylonians, followed by exile. And by the rivers of Babylon, the chastened, educated elite of Judah hung up their harps and wept, and when their tears dried, they took up their writing tools and began to finally set down their national story to create what we call the Old Testament. Scholars call the authors the Deuteronomists. They created a narrative crafted from oral traditions, the story of a people whose origins the historical record cannot definitively show us. It was not objective history. Its purpose was to tell the story of Judah and to zealously exalt Josiah's view that Judah and the other tribes were chosen by the one true God. Their covenant explained by the story of the patriarchs and then slavery in Egypt, Moses, Passover, the Ten Commandments. Worship in this covenant is centered in the city of Jerusalem with the monarchical line of David exalted through the prophecies of Samuel and proven by the stories in the Book of Kings. The books offered a constant lesson. Those who deviated from the path of the one God were punished, 
in Sinai, in the northern kingdom, and finally in Judah. After nearly fifty years of exile, in what must have seemed like a miracle to the people inventing this narrative, from the east the Persian Empire suddenly arose, crushed Babylon, and sent the exiles from Judah back to their land, where they rebuilt the temple. And, quick aside, at the same time precisely that the Deuteronomists were creating the Bible, the first works of Greek philosophy were being written, and in India the Buddha was teaching, and in China Confucius was writing the Analects. In the space of seventy-five to a hundred years, the basic thought systems of civilization were created from one end of Asia to the other. You can listen to my programs about this, Faith Without God, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Anyway, as I said at the start, I was looking for some proof that the quarrelsomeness between Jews has some basis in historical fact. The Bible unearthed by Finkelstein and Silberman confirmed this and gave it focus. The argument over who is a good Jew is never-ending. In Israel today, the religious establishment would not regard me as one. I am an apostate to them. The Enlightenment movement towards religious tolerance, syncretism in a way, was outlined first by Spinoza, who was expelled from the Jewish community in Amsterdam. The creation of modern Jewry has been marked by this tension. It's a major theme of my book, Emancipation, about the century and a half after Jews were let out of their ghettos across Europe during the Napoleonic era. The Jews who tried to integrate, who changed their modes of worship to fit in with Christian society around them, were attacked by those who zealously clung to the puritanical ways. I'm a product of this tension. On one side, I am from a long line of secular Jews going back to Odessa in what is today Ukraine. On the other, I'm Orthodox from a shtetl in Galicia in what is today Ukraine. Visit Israel today and it can feel like the two kingdoms are still in conflict. The syncretists on the beach in Tel Aviv and the Puritans on their rocky outcrop in Jerusalem. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That theory may have been debunked in biology, but in history, it does seem that every era of Jewish history seems to recapitulate the argument that was among us from the time the book was written and codified. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. Visit, please visit. There's a lot of good stuff there. And you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.